investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors to episode 50 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I can't believe we're up to episode 50 already. Thought we'd commemorate the occasion with a very special guest on today's episode. That's W. Brett Wilson, who's an, a real season entrepreneur and investor, a co-founder of First Energy, one of the most successful boutique investment banks in the country, owner of the Nashville Predators, along with being an author and philanthropist. He had some really unique insights on investment opportunities, his career, tips for entrepreneurs, how he supports entrepreneurships and startups. And lastly, we discuss his view of how to measure success and his keys to success in not only business, but life as well. So with no further ado, here's our guest on today's podcast, W. Brett Wilson. And we're live. Brett, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you making the time out of your busy schedule. Uh, to start things off, I just want to get into uh, your experience in being supportive of startups and, and entrepreneurs, obviously famous for being on Dragon's Den. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, you're supportive of entrepreneurship, and, and after that, really just a prolific backer of startups and, and entrepreneurs. Why don't you tell us about your approach to investing in new businesses and startups. Let's even go back a little further. I never really thought of myself as being an entrepreneur because I viewed the entrepreneurship world as one of risk. It took a long time for me to appreciate that in my new very clear outcome in terms of my approach to this is that entrepreneurs are not risk takers. They simply view risk It's not about rolling the dice and getting a thrill like you would if you were in Vegas, but it's betting on yourself, betting on something that you know. You might be wrong, but you're not taking risk for the thrill of the risk. You're not chasing for the thrill of the chase. You're actually building because you believe in yourself. And the world of entrepreneurship came to me uh, left, right, and center. Uh, really after I finished my engineering degree, came to Calgary, did a business degree. Early on in the business degree, one of my first classes was entrepreneurship, you know, 501, 101, 201, whatever. And it was an introduction to case studies where I was watching people in um, sort of non-entrepreneurial backgrounds be fostered into the world of entrepreneurship. And I realized, you know what, this is me. And that was really the essence of First Energy when we got it going. The business that I started before that, which we imaginatively called Wilson Mackey, uh, my partner. Mackie and I got going and we brokered oil and gas properties just like a real estate agent would. But as we evolved into First Energy, the opportunity to back the entrepreneurial community in Canada, and in particular the oil and gas industry, uh, was front and center. And we really fell in love with the world of entrepreneurship. Great. And you mentioned First Energy, which you were a co-founder of and really grew it to one of the largest and most premier boutique investment banks in the country. What was its key to success? You know, we came together as a partnership. There was Jim Davidson and Murray Edwards and Rick Grafton. And each of us brought unique skills to the table, but we also brought unique relationships to the table. 
and Murray knew a couple people that joined, and I had some team in terms of Mackey and the, the Wilson Mackey group, and, and Jim and Rick each had people that they brought to the table. So it was really, at that time, it was about an opportunity to cherry-pick the best of the best. As we built a team from scratch, it wasn't 12 people that came together. It was four who then curated and chose, very carefully, a great collection of the right trader, the right research, the right support team as we built First Energy. We also stumbled into the market at the right time. The market had been in uh, kind of the doldrums. There, um, the market itself that we were trading into wasn't easy to work with, uh, but there was no competition who was as focused as we were. First Energy was intending to be, and we joked about this many times, but cradle to grave. And many investment banks focused on startup to certain market cap, maybe 100 million, 200 million. And then the big bank-owned dealers said, until you're you know, a quarter of a billion dollars in market cap, we're not interested in you. What we discovered was that the cradle to grave relationship was important. And while we wouldn't be the only investment banker working with a given company, we'd be one of several. And so the idea of cradle to grave, helping someone start with their first financings, and we discovered that we could do that even as private companies. A lot of people thought that all financings were meant to be done in the public markets. Not so. Private market, and we'd sometimes do two or three or four financings in the private market, then take them public, list them, trade them. And then eventually, when the offer came in, sell them. So cradle to grave. Right. And so you guys got together and you spotted an opportunity in the market that really was not being capitalized on by your competitors. That's correct. The, the competition, you know, Peters & Co. was in the market, but they were regional. They happened to be mostly oil and gas, but their focus was anything in Alberta. And so they weren't nearly as, uh, as you, if you will, consumed with just oil and gas as we were. They evolved there, and then into the market came GMP, who said, you know what, we're going to have an oil and gas office in Calgary. And of course, they had great people, and they did a great job doing that. And there was a few others, Lancaster, others that created uh, platforms in oil and gas. But the one, the most enduring platform of all, ultimately, was the first energy platform. And right. And how has that Calgary investment banking market changed from that time when you founded First Energy looking at today now? Well, for sure, the challenges have been many. Um, obviously, the um, First Energy has gone through a couple of different shareholder groups in terms of uh, both uh, GMP and now Stifle. Um, but we've also seen other people in the marketplace evolving in terms of their focus and their interest. The fact that there's very little capital being raised, you know, I think we were 20 billion to less than 1 billion in a three or four year window. And the, the capital markets, uh, both M&A and, uh, and new issue equity are the essence of how a firm gets along. Trading day to day is helpful, it's part of the business for sure, but the merger and acquisition work and the new issue work is uh, is critical. So it's been challenging for um, the players, but again, the key players, uh, as investment bankers go, um, have stayed the course and uh, there's still a handful that are available when you need them. Right. And so continuing on with that thread is that uh, many of your colleagues remain energy focused, but you're well known outside of the oil and gas sector, whether it be real estate, cannabis, uh, professional sports. So mm. you have become well diversified while many of your peers sort of stayed uh, energy focused, which has certainly uh, hurt over the past five years or so. How does your approach to investing differ from your peers? Well, there's the investment approach may have been a bit different, but most of my peer group are looking at opportunities. And we've most of us have learned not to stray too far 
from the nest in terms of where you first got skilled. At First Energy, we got good at oil and gas, but we also got good at the people that ran oil and gas. And that was, uh, for me, the essence of most of the, the future businesses. I certainly was active in cannabis for the last couple of years, but my son who worked for me and I went about building relationships so that we could build opportunities. And that's really uh, the essence of, uh, of that business. The um, Nashville Predators, I bought into those folks the night that I landed in Nashville. Hmm. It was a unique opportunity. There was a dinner party, got talking hockey as inevitably would happen. And at a table or a house that had about 100 people sitting down for dinner, I happened to be randomly seated beside a kid whose family was part of the new ownership group. And they'd lost someone from the ownership group that morning. So random chit chat, not much more different than you do at a, at a coffee shop, turned into, would you be interested in buying a piece of the breads? I looked at the league, I understood the economics, I understood the paperwork, and so basically the next day at noon I shook hands on buying, uh, I can't recall, 10 or 12% of the club at that time. And so, uh, and I stepped up my interest over time and kept uh, participating. I'm not an on-the-ice guy, but I'm pretty good at the non-on-the-ice things from marketing to uh, to financial transactions and how we capitalize our business. So uh, I was able to add value, and that really goes back to, it's probably a mistake for most people to invest in businesses where they can't add value. Whether it's a phone call to a board member or um, an update from a supplier or a competitor or a consumer um, or even being able to help in staffing. There should be some value-added proposition uh, to really make it interesting. I've done random investing for sure, but my success record, for example, in uh, startups in technology, I don't know if I'm zero for 10 or zero for 20, but I'm, I'm or maybe one but there's not much that's worked out well. And I've done the novelty of investing in friends and their ideas and that sort of stuff, but really have to focus on people who know what they're doing. And that's where cannabis has worked out, farmland's worked out, real estate's worked out, sports has worked out. Certainly energy has been volatile, but in the long term, it's worked out. Right. And owning the Nashville Predators, or at least a stake in them. What was your underlying investment thesis? Did you view that as undervalued, uh, inflation hedge, fulfillment of a childhood dream? You know, sports franchises are mostly ego plays, and I mean that in a kind way. It's you want to be involved with the sport. Um, it's not, not many people lead with economics when they're making those decisions. It has to look fair. Well, you don't do it. But I can't think of anyone who'd say, yeah, I'd love to overpay for a baseball team (laughs) or overpay for a hockey team. So at the time, it looked fair. Now, with the evolution of marketing and Bettman's done a phenomenal job and blah, 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 and the Rogers uh, deal that was done in terms of uh, media and marketing, the value of every hockey team in North America appreciated dramatically. So have I done well by it economically? Yes. Did I expect to do okay? Yeah, okay was all I needed. And was I hoping for a team that would be exciting on the ice? Uh, Yeah, and we delivered in spades on that. Right, so it's been a good experience thus far? All of it's been a good experience. You know, we've had our differences as owners. Um, you know, we've had to turn over a coach recently. But you know, the management of the team does a pretty good job of taking care of the taking care of business. Call it. And how surprised have you been? Just the the absolute uptick in hockey interest in the South. Uh, Nashville is really the cornerstone of that. How has that been as an owner witnessing that fan fan demand increase? Well, I took a great deal of good natured abuse from friends with what the heck were you thinking or kinder words than that buying into a team that 
probably isn't going to make it. And I said, if you ever get to Nashville and you watch the fan base, the fan base might be small, but it's more passionate than I've seen in other big cities that call themselves hockey cities. You know, it's pretty easy to have the Nashville fans, even today, stand for the last two minutes of a game. Whether we're up two or down one, it doesn't matter. They're there to throw enthusiasm. And I've been to games in virtually every Canadian hockey rink and you don't get that same buzz. So all due respect to my Canadian hockey friend, hockey fan friends or hockey friend fans, there's more to the game. And Nashville was a great example. And you know who came to visit Nashville to see how they could roll out their team? group called the Vegas Golden Knights hmm. and they may have taken this uh, the flag from us in terms of fan engagement but it's a matter of understanding in the world of sport that it's entertainment happens to be hockey but it's entertainment first and so what happens from the moment you buy your ticket not to the moment you get to the arena but to the buy your ticket there's an engagement opportunity there's emails there's all sorts of there's websites then there's the outside the arena activity the inside the arena activity food and beverage how it's all packaged the music the entertainment the between periods the after play uh, the little flags that you wave the people who show up um, there's so much to it it's so much more than who's your coach and who's your front line yeah that totally makes sense and so aside from professional sports, which obviously seems to have worked out very successfully uh, thus far, what longer term trends are you focusing your investments on and where are you seeing opportunities on a go forward basis? Well, I've been pretty active in uh, two areas. One is real estate and selectively choosing where I want to be in real estate and part of it's with family and friends. And um, not all of the real estate I own is up for development right now, but there's a few projects. I have bought into Kelowna in 2006-07. It took five years for anyone to return my calls, and now the, the phone's ringing constantly with people interested doing a development out in Windermere, B.C. of some size. And probably the most significant project on my plate right now is working with a guy named Bruce Chernoff, and together we control a business called Maxim Power. And at Maxim, we're building what's, I believe, the only significant power plant under construction in Alberta being built up in Grand Cache, Alberta. So it's a, a gas-fired power plant. Have I ever built one before? No. Did we figure out how to do it? Looks like it, but we won't know until we flip the switch. Right, right. That's good to know. Um, so you wrote a book called Redefining Success, which I recently read. I uh, really enjoyed it. What I found was interesting was you used to define success by material wealth and financial success but you really changed your definition uh, over the course of your career and your life. How did that sort of develop? How did you used to view it versus how you now view and define success? You know, the, the title of the book was originally contemplated to be redefining success in a wealth-obsessed world. So taking a little bit of shot at the, at the business life that I'd led. And a wealth-obsessed world is not an uncommon world. You know, people focused on, you know, f you start with, you know, food and shelter and then clothing and then you start to get into where's your holidays and how big's your office and what kind of car are you driving and how long was your holiday and you start creeping into this world where material wealth creates opportunities and they become somewhat shallow and superficial over time if your only focus is indeed called the wealth, uh, the wealth objective and you know, looking at the important things in one's life, you know, I redefined my idea of success and tied it to happiness. And in order for me to be happy, I had to have my health, had to have my family, had to have my friends. Those were much higher priorities than where my office was or, uh, you know, 
some of those called superficial moments. And when I named the book Redefining Success, the subtitle is Still Making Mistakes. And at some point, one of the people at uh, HarperCollins said, well, can we just call the book Still Making Mistakes? And I smiled and said, my life's not that screwed up. It's just <laughs> redefining success. We'll work with it. Yeah, perhaps that's the uh, sequel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so being respectful of your time, just uh, a couple more questions. Um, Touching back on entrepreneurship, do you have any tips for entrepreneurs who haven't made it yet, just uh, new to business, just starting out, college students, etc.? Sure. In terms of advice, I think I always argue that uh, the study of three things makes a difference. The study of marketing, the study of entrepreneurship, and the study of philanthropy. And let me go back to marketing. You know, a one-page resume can be powerful. A 10-page resume can be boring. So understanding that probably for most people, the most important marketing document they'll ever prepare is first their resume and then potentially down the road, a business plan with a pitch. But understanding that marketing is your point of differentiation. It's how you set yourself apart from the crowd. And whether you're studying marketing when you're 10 years old and selling um, lemonade to people down the street, driving down the street, or you're... um, an adult, 35, 40 years old, looking for a career change. Marketing yourself is, is literally job one. And there's many ways of studying marketing, whether it's books or CDs or podcasts or online tools. Um, doesn't much matter. But the study of marketing, and it's often overlooked. When I did my MBA, the cool cats were studying finance and accounting. And anyone who studied marketing was probably destined to sell toothpaste or cereal for the rest of their lives. And yet... My focus on marketing while I was doing my MBA was a big part of what allowed First Energy to differentiate itself, me to differentiate myself. The constant focus on marketing was a result of studying marketing, understanding it. So the study of marketing, study of entrepreneurship, and the study of entrepreneurship for me isn't studying accounting and finance, it's studying examples of those who've gone before. Legendary entrepreneurs of big consequence, whether it's a Clay Riddell or a Jimmy Pattison, or someone who's still growing businesses left, right, and center, like a Murray Edwards, or younger guys who are still making things happen, like a Jay Hawker or a Brett Wilson. But there's there's so many examples of people who've done real-life stories, taken real-life stories and turned them into real-life businesses. And that's the study of entrepreneurship. When I was doing my MBA, I had the privilege of studying a few case studies that inspired me, massively inspired me in terms of what did they do, why did they do it, how did they do it, where are they now? And then, of course, the last part is philanthropy. And, you know, I jokingly point out that at First Energy, we made a lot of money giving money away. And that was because we built brand, we built relationships, we built connections. And we were often one phone call away from an important person relative to a relationship with a selling a business or doing a financing or whatever. The brand that we had built as an investment bank, because we had a social conscience, was unique. And there's just one example of the thread that ties marketing, entrepreneurship, and ultimately philanthropy together. We made a lot of money making the city a better place to be. It's really interesting. And touching on marketing and branding, you've really built yourself up a personal brand as an investor, as a businessman. What was really the key to success in elevating uh, your brand and establishing it within the market? Obviously, Dragon's Den must have been uh, huge to get that national coverage. National coverage was interesting, but I had 
extraordinary profile in Calgary as a result of First Energy and the charity work we were doing. So I wasn't craving or seeking more, but I, it was coincidental. I had retired the week I turned 50, and three months later I happened to be doing charity work and it was in Mexico of all places and I got an email from CBC saying we'd like you to be the next dragon so I had literally retired I don't think if I had been in the saddle riding hard in terms of chairman and doing what I was doing that I would have found the time to take on the dragon's den first of all the shooting and second and probably more importantly uh, actually getting the deals done and helping run the businesses so built a lot of brand as a result of dragon's den Twitter was formed as we were getting Dragon's Den going. I still remember CBC coming to us saying, would you sign up for this software? And a couple of us are going, no. <laughs> and they leaned on us. And then it became a competition to see who could be first to getting a thousand followers and blah, blah, blah. And um, so all of a sudden, Kevin and Brett and Arlene and Jim and everyone's playing with, with this thing called Twitter. I've evolved off of all social media platforms. Um, you can't really find me on Facebook and you won't find me on Instagram. But Twitter is the platform. I refer to it as the platform for sports and politics. Right. And I'm a little bit interested in both of those. It's good to know because to leave things off, I just wanted to allow you to let our listeners where they can hear more about you. Obviously, you're big on Twitter. Uh, a great follow, by the way. Hmm. No, I've had a lot of fun on, uh, on Twitter. And I've got actually an incredible following. You know, we're coming up on a couple hundred thousand followers, but there's some interesting hockey players and musicians. There's interesting uh, local politicians. There's national politicians. There's business leaders. There's a wide range of people who interact there. And, uh, you know, some days I'll spend half an hour on it. Other days, like today, gets three minutes. I'm a little preoccupied with other stuff. So, um, But I enjoy being able to rant and rage, rant in a rage in a friendly way, on topics of interest to me. And sometimes... They, uh, I take headlines, news headlines, and simply recreate them using facts. I think the world has suffered by virtue of the fact that we don't apply critical thinking to a lot of things we hear. You know, there was, just to pick one article, there was one yesterday about some young guy, girl, I can't recall, talking about how the electrification of all of our furnaces was critical to the future of the planet. Not once in that article did they acknowledge that the economics of converting all these furnaces was a disaster, mm -hmm. that there isn't enough power in the grid. doesn't exist. Again, I'm a power guy. There isn't enough power in the grid to fuel, to displace the BTUs from the heat provided by propane and natural gas. There isn't enough power in any of the grids. So we have a massive recreation of your wires and all your connecting systems so there's a there's massive hypocrisy embedded in this article but it's got a nice little headline saying the future requires electrification of our furnaces so i might have taken a poke at that article <laughs> <laughs> might have yeah it seems or i might be getting ready to one or the other i can't recall yeah, there's a lot of uh, critics who lack rationality and really don't take all the underlying, uh, you know, evidence and uh, information required to really make those vast pronouncements. Like you said, just for electricity, we just don't have the grid or any of the infrastructure, let alone billions of dollars to, to recreate all of that. Well, right? and on that, I challenge a listener to do the math on what it takes if everybody plugged in their electric car at supper time. And others say, well, yeah, but that doesn't count. People could always get up at one in the morning and plug their car in. And I'm thinking, really? You're going to set the alarm to get up to plug your car in at one in the morning? No, everyone's going to plug in at night. So mm -hmm. your peak load could go up. And I think the math was a factor of four or five right. if you're plugging cars in. 
left, right, and center because you got to upcharge uh, this massive. Well, we don't have enough power in the grid to let everyone charge their cars. And yet those who are proponents of electric cars say everyone's going to be driving one in 2030 or 2040. The other side uh, sidecar, I'll just finish with this, is you know right now there's a fuel tax to pay for our roads. Electric cars don't pay a fuel tax. Mm. So are roads going to be free <laughs> going forward? Is that the model? How are we, who's going to pay for them? Right. I mean, it's, you know, just things that haven't been thought through right. in this mindless pursuit of um, decarbonization. Right. Well, there you have it, folks. So Brett Wilson, as always, bringing rationality <laughs> and uh, intellectual conversation into the mix. So with that said, uh, thank you so much for your time and a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yes, thank you. Mm, an invite in a year might be a wise thing. Let's do it again. All right. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds great. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.